should we present the Bible to non-believers in this postmodern, post-Christian culture? Find out more in a new series beginning today on Encounter God's Truth. I'm Wayne Shepherd, your host, encouraging you to stay with us as author, educator, and Bible teacher Dr. John Whitcomb brings us part one of a message called Basic Biblical Answers. Dr. Whitcomb first taught this material at a Bible conference at Appalachian Bible College, and I'll share more details regarding that throughout this series. In this first segment, Dr. Whitcomb gives us illustrations from the disciplines of science and history to exemplify the challenges that evolutionists face, which we must probe as we proclaim the gospel to those who do not yet believe in Christ. You'll want to follow carefully through this entire series in order to grasp everything we're trying to convey. It's intended to bolster our confidence that God's Word is true from the beginning to the end. But if you have to leave before the program closes, remember that you can always listen again at sermonaudio.com slash Whitcomb. Right now, let's join the congregation that gathered at Appalachian Bible College for this apologetics conference. Here's Dr. Whitcomb to offer basic biblical answers. Dr. Anderson and uh, members of the administration and faculty and staff and students and friends, Appalachian Bible College What a precious memory to have been here in years gone by and to see God's continued blessing upon this school, this testimony he's raised up in this beautiful setting to shine into the deepening darkness all over the world. I just appreciate so much this wonderful opportunity to share, and I want you to know that between sessions, I'm available to chat with people about things that we're going to talk about and trust that we can come to a clear understanding of the basics of uh, how to reach the world for Jesus Christ in spite of the fact that we have a sin nature, though we're redeemed by the grace of God through faith in Jesus' finished work on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And especially those who do not know the Lord, who are under the constant deep influence of the God of this world, Satan, And God's means for penetrating that darkness and reaching people for Christ, that we might with passion go forth courageously and tell them who Jesus really is and what he really did. I'd like to begin with a little study this morning of what has to be one of the most amazing things in the whole universe. Let's take a look. How many of you have ever seen this miracle of creation called a giraffe? If you haven't, you must rush immediately to the nearest zoo and take a close look at something that modern, godless, atheistic evolutionists hate to see. A nine-foot-long neck attached to a body that's nine feet high. 18 feet high, that head, two feet long, towers over the animal kingdom. And friends, uh, scientists are just absolutely astounded at such a creature. They have no idea how an animal could have attained such features and such functions as a giraffe. Because when you uh, ponder the the impossibility of this coming about gradually through millions of years, as evolutionists teach us, in which I believe, because my father was an evolutionist and my grandfather too, 
And for 18 years, I did not know the Lord at all. And at Princeton University, I was an evolutionist and believed the things that were told me about these amazing creatures. But uh, friends, uh, evolutionists say, well, maybe for millions of years, uh, normal necked animals had to stretch their necks to reach the vegetation on trees during uh, millions of years of drought. Well, then how did a hippopotamus survive with a short neck? And furthermore, we found out, of course, as you probably know, that uh, you can't inherit characteristics acquired by your ancestors, your parents or your ancestors. In other words, no matter how uh, long your neck becomes through stretching, which, of course, is absurd, your children will never inherit that. If you lose a finger, your child doesn't have one less finger because God protects, you see, the bodily function and form of a child from the damage and injury that a parent may have experienced. So evolutionists just feel, well, maybe uh, maybe the, there were mutations. Uh, maybe a certain group of these animals had a mutation, namely uh, slightly longer the neck than other animals, and that gave them an advantage over shorter-necked animals, and therefore they survived and the other ones didn't. Well, of course, now we know better. Mutations are extremely rare in terms of what? Beneficial results. You create damage, not improvement. And furthermore, friends, nature amazingly eliminates these kinds of damage, distorted mutants. And evolutionists basically, I'm sure secretly, admit that that is true. Now, friends, we've got another problem. What happens when this giraffe suddenly puts his head down 18 feet to drink water? Wouldn't you think that the rush of blood down those uh, huge arteries would knock him out? Well, that's true of many of us. I mean, you put your head suddenly down, you become dizzy, lose consciousness even. But uh, now we have discovered that inside that neck, there's a whole series of valves in the in the arteries that uh, reverse when he puts his neck down and thus prevents the blood from rushing to his head. And there's a spongy substance down there at the top of the brain that also absorbs whatever additional blood comes down. So he survives, puts his head back up smiling, and gallops away. You say, that's incredible. How can an animal have all that special equipment inside of itself by chance, by evolution? Well... As you look more closely, you see some other amazing things about a giraffe. For example, he has 10 times as much blood pumping out of that gigantic heart, a heart eight times as big as ours. He has enormous uh, capacities to absorb air uh, and to get it down to those huge lungs. I mean, everything is designed perfectly to accommodate the size shape and function of a giraffe and I say well Lord why don't evolutionists admit they have a hopeless problem and immediately surrender unconditionally to God and look for the nearest Bible preaching church well it's just that they have a very very serious problem and that will be our goal today, God willing, and tomorrow, to see the enormity, the depth of the problem that an evolutionist has, or any unbeliever, 
who looks at God's creation and sees the things that were obviously designed by someone who has infinite intelligence and yet suppresses, resists, denies, rejects the obvious. You see, friends, all the scientific data of the world, not just giraffes, but all the animal kingdom and all the plants and trees and flowers and, and uh, other human beings like ourselves, and uh, out there, the moon, see that beautiful crescent moon last night? And beyond that, the uh, eight other planets and the sun and other stars and galaxies. Uh, how do we dismiss the obvious divine supernatural design of the world and the universe? Okay. Scientific data pouring in constantly through microscopes, telescopes, and just plain observation. Well, you see, the unbeliever has a screen or a grid through which all the scientific data flow constantly, night and day. And that screen or grid eliminates God totally, continually, effectively. You see, there are all different kinds of uh, evolutionists that believe in what? Mechanistic, naturalistic processes without God, without design, without purpose, without plan. Well, you can be an atheistic evolutionist. That's not quite so popular today, especially because we know that an atheist, which means, of course, in Greek, no God, ah, no, theos, God, could be a dangerous person. I mean, if you have no God that you're accountable to or answerable to, you could just eliminate anybody who gets in your way. You see? And we don't like terrorists, potential ones. So atheists tend to be a little bit subdued and secretive about their commitment to a no-God universe. Far safer and acceptable socially is a deistic evolutionist. What in the world is that? Well, that comes from the Latin word for God, Deus. And it means that uh, you believe that somewhere back there, there probably was a God who designed and created the universe and then just did what? Just let it go. And we've never seen him or heard from him since. He just sort of created the universe and, and here we are. The outworking of what? Pre-programmed natural processes through evolution, through billions of years, and he's remote and inaccessible and really unknowable. And that became a popular view in England in the 1700s and slurped over to the colonies in the late 1700s. I mean, there were people, uh, one of our presidents was a deist, uh, Thomas Jefferson, a very brilliant man. Denied the deity of Christ and the inspiration of the Bible. And uh, there were others, Benjamin Franklin. In fact, it was very popular to be a deist in the 1700s and, of course, even since then. You say, well, I'm not an atheist. I believe in God. Really? Well, what God? Well, I, I think that God, you know, did something back there, but we don't know who he is or what he's ever said anything to us and revealed himself. No. Never again. 
But even more popular is a theistic evolutionism. Now that simply means that uh, you believe not only that a God, a personal living God created the universe, but he has been with us ever since through billions of years and he has controlled the process of evolution moment by moment and brought lifeless chemicals in a primeval sea into a highly complex form that diversified into all the marine creatures and all the uh, plants and animals of the living world today and and then finally, uh, he, he, he himself personally saw to it that out of a group of primates, human beings finally evolved. And therefore, he's here. He's active. He's wise and powerful. But you see, evolution through billions of years has been his method, according to theistic evolutionism. And there are different forms of that. Progressive creationism is one form of it, uh, slightly different in some respects, but nevertheless, the billions of years and death in the animal kingdom long before Adam ever sinned and a local flood in the days of Noah and a big bang billions of years ago that sort of launched everything. Theistic evolution, progressive creationism, the day age view, by all means, let's accommodate modern scientific opinion on the origin, nature, and destiny of the world, and yet have God involved all along the way. Well, friends, this whole grid or screen that uh, dominates the mind and the heart of unregenerate, unsaved, scientifically-minded people today uh, is totally understood and explained by the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, here's one of my favorite statements by the Lord on evolutionists. Are you ready? In Matthew 15, out of the heart of man proceed evil thoughts. Oh, you mean it's the heart of man that is the center of the problem. Uh, not what you see out there, not your skill and observation, not your beautiful microscopes or telescopes or other instruments. No, uh, there's something uh, inside of you and me that uh, predetermines, absolutely guarantees you will not see God. And that is what? An evil, depraved, sinful, unregenerate heart. You see in the Bible, heart is a metaphor for the soul, the spirit, the conscience, the will, the emotions of, of, of a human being designed and created in the image and likeness of God. You say, well, then, then the whole situation is hopeless. Yes. See, preconceived ideas about origins provides a bias in the human heart against God. Or any evidences of God. Well, then how, how do you get people converted then? How do you get people from this box right here called evolution over to this box called creation, supernatural creation, creative design, humble recognition of the glory and greatness of God and how he controls the world that he created? And I say to you, friends, with all 
the emphasis at my uh, disposal. You can't do it. You can't argue, you can't pressure, you can't threaten, you cannot influence any unsaved, unregenerate person, however lovely he may be or friendly. You can't persuade him to become a God-honoring believer by human finite pressure. Hmm. Well, then, then the situation is hopeless. Well, friends, I'd like to say that that was a discovery that God enabled me to make by his grace in February of 1943 when I was an atheistic evolutionist at Princeton University in the state of New Jersey. My parents uh, had a great desire, I was their only child, to uh, send me to a university at great expense to them, by the way, where I could be trained to become maybe a diplomat in the United States State Department. My father was a great military leader and, and uh, in the Second World War, his, he was a West Point graduate, uh, a very brilliant man in terms of strategy and tactics and weapons and wars and battles and all kinds of things like that. In fact, uh, I was raised in that total atmosphere from childhood. In fact, his father was a great army surgeon in the Spanish-American War and, and uh, the First World War. And, and uh, our next-door neighbor in Fort Benning, Georgia, when I was a young man, at the Command and General Staff School, where my father uh, studied and taught even, in 1939, 40, 41, our next-door neighbor was General George Patton. And I, I want you to know, friends, that uh, my whole mind had been conditioned and shaped along those lines of thinking. Well, I couldn't qualify for West Point because I had very poor eyesight, and at those times you had to have 20-20 vision to get in to the military academy. So they thought, well, at least maybe... Our son can become a diplomat in the United States State Department. So let's, uh, let's go for Princeton University's John Foster Dulles School of Public and International Affairs. And I was determined to prove to my parents that I was worthy of their trust and their investment. God had amazing plans I knew nothing of. I had just graduated from a military prep school in Chattanooga, Tennessee called Macaulay School. Anybody ever heard of that school? Three or four? Uh, gave me excellent training on how, you know, to develop study habits and self-discipline and all those kinds of things, apart from which I would never have made it in any university, I'm sure. By the way, in God's mercy and providence, the, the, the headmaster of this, of this uh, school was a born-again Christian, Dr. J.P. McCauley. And in chapel services, uh, he would... Uh, make the gospel clear, all of which I resisted during the two years I was there. But uh, when I arrived at Princeton University, a Macaulay graduate of the previous year knew I had arrived, found out I'd arrived, and came to my dormitory room on the fourth floor of Pine Hall and knocked on the door and introduced himself and said, uh, John, I just would like to invite you to our Sunday afternoon Bible class at the Student Center at Murray Dodge Hall. We have a wonderful teacher, Donald B. Fullerton, a graduate of Princeton from 1913 who's been a missionary in, in India and Afghanistan. 
Well, I had no interest at all in taking my valuable, precious time to uh, study the Bible. But after he obviously had prayed for me and came back two or three more times to invite me, I felt I was obliged at least to show up once. From which I've never recovered. (laughs) I heard amazing exposition of the Bible. I knew nothing really about the Bible, but I was impressed by the graciousness and the wisdom and the, and the skill of this teacher. And after several months of this, this is the summer in the accelerated program, the summer of 42, uh, the war years you see had just started for us. Uh, finally, he felt it appropriate to invite himself to my dorm room to explain to me more carefully uh, who Jesus really is. In a weak moment, I said yes. And he appeared very graciously and uh, he didn't insult me because I was an evolutionist or threaten me in any way. He just said, I I would like to share with you, John, uh, what uh, God says in the only book he ever wrote about who Christ the Lord is. And he began to unfold the scriptures verse by verse, point by point. Uh, And I was fascinated by what I heard. And he said, you have to believe in your heart of hearts that Jesus, the son of God, God's only son, the second person of the triune Godhead, uh, added a human nature to his divine nature 2000 years ago in the body of a Jewish mother, a Jewish woman, in order to be able to die on the cross for our sins and rise again from the dead the third day. And John, all you have to do is accept the gift. You don't have to improve yourself or turn over a new leaf or go to some school somewhere. You just receive the gift that he has offered you. And friends, this verse, God so loved the world that uh, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have right now permanently, totally, Everlasting life was a spear right into my heart. And uh, in one split second, I became a new creation in Christ and old things passed away and all things became new. Now, careful here. That doesn't mean I knew everything. See? That I didn't have years of struggling to fit all this together with what I had been taught. No. It simply means that from that moment on, I had a respect for The Bible I had never known. God opened my heart to the realities of his infallible, inerrant, inspired, written revelation, the Bible. Okay. I was born again, regenerated. I was adopted into God's family. I became a son through faith in his son, in God's family. Okay. Justified. From all guilt before an infinitely holy God who transferred the righteousness of his son to me, to my account, and transferred my sin to Jesus, who paid for my sin on that cross and died in my place as my substitute. See, vicarious atonement, substitutionary atonement. Well, friends, may I put this mildly? 
I have never recovered. That was it. The beginning of a whole new life. And uh, when I came out of that dormitory the next morning, trust me, the whole world looked different to me. The sun up there and the sky and the clouds and and the trees and the flowers and the grass and squirrels and people and everything. I mean, I could see immediately, overwhelmingly, that God had designed and created the world. Well, I was desperate to share my discovery. Let's place a bookmark right there and pick up next time with the conclusion of Basic Biblical Answers. It's part of a new series on biblical apologetics that we present here on Encounter God's Truth, a weekly Bible teaching outreach of Whitcomb Ministries. Look us up at whitcombministries.org and from there find continual updates and encouragement at facebook.com slash Ministries. I'm Wayne Shepherd, rejoicing that we have this opportunity to meet you on the radio and online to share the sovereign power of our infinite creator God and also his gift of salvation offered freely through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Next week, we'll look at more information and motivation to help us communicate that message to others. But I end now with this benediction from Psalm 102. Nations will fear the name of the Lord, and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. For the Lord builds up Zion. He appears in his glory. He regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. Let this be recorded for a generation to come, so that people yet to be created may praise the Lord.